Welcome to Food and Wine with Chef Jamie Gwen. Celebrate food and life by learning about the culinary scene around the world. Speaking with chefs, artists, and food makers, farmers, authors, and tastemakers who are passionate about everything delicious. A very good Sunday to you, food lovers. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. This show is about all aspects of the food world. From family dinners to restaurant fare, from artisanal food producers to rustic street food. So join in on the conversation. Sit down at your kitchen table or wherever you are and stay tuned for an hour of simple preparation techniques and the ability to find out what's new and delicious every week. You can dive into the culinary world with me and you can meet top chefs and master sommeliers, baking experts, and so many other talents. This is where expert techniques, regional cooking, and all the tips and tricks you need to be the best chef you know will be shared. I cover it all here. It's like eating and drinking that you've never done before. So stay tuned for an hour of delicious conversation. You can always find me serving up seconds at chefjamie.com and on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at chefjamiegwen. So seeing that it is cold in most parts of the country, albeit we'll ignore uh, that where I live in Southern California, it's been warm and balmy, but I am still in winter fair mode. I love rich comfort food and the idea of cold weather and warm dishes. And so I thought I would take the opportunity to share my best thoughts on how to make the perfect bolognese. There's something brilliantly comforting and undeniably satisfying about a big bowl of pasta. But it's interesting to consider that bolognese, with its heritage steeped, of course, in Italy, has no definitive recipe. It is worthy, of course, of its name because it respects the tradition of the area of Emilia-Romagna, but it's the tomato-based beef ragu, I like mine with a blend of meat, in fact, that's rich with garlic and olive oil, but it actually comes from dairy country. Emilia-Romagna is where the dairy cows are in Italy, and it's controversial, in fact, that such a hearty meat sauce would have a dairy addition. Well, I happen to believe in milk and meat, and I like the idea of a rich meat sauce with a little bit of milk or cream at the base. Now, the classic Italian cookery Bible gives us a a ragu alla bolognese in its most basic form. And of course, that is, um, you know, minced beef or ground beef, onion, celery, carrot, and tomato puree. And since there's no such thing as an authentic bolognese, I like to stay true to the spirit of the dish, but add lots of other really rich, fabulous key flavors. Now, I like to cook my bolognese long and slow, and I make a double or a triple batch because you can always freeze extra for additional weeknight suppers or for that, you know, simple snack. Um, But I think it is best served with a noodle that can hold the sauce. So, No thin spaghetti here. I happen to like a noodle that has the veins or the indentations, as they call in Italian, rigate. So it has something to hold the sauce after you've cooked the pasta. The little indentations or the the wedges that really grip on to the chunky meat. 
Now, as far as the perfect bolognese is concerned, I'm looking for rich flavor. So I start with some sort of bacon, uh, preferably in the form of pancetta. And then I like a combination of beef, pork, and veal. Uh, I like that combination, by the way, in most Italian-inspired ground meat dishes like meatballs or meatloaf. You see, the beef itself adds flavor and fat. The pork adds definitely uh, that component of fat, but sort of a clean, lovely sort of round meat flavor. And then the veal has just exceptional succulents. And when you combine all three, you get an incredible combination. Of course, starting um, with the pancetta or bacon or any smoked meat that you love, you'll render off the bacon or pancetta. Then you'll add uh, celery, carrot, and onion and cook it down until it's caramelized and sweet and lovely. And uh, at some point, some great Italian cooks will even add a teaspoon of sugar here or to the tomato sauce when you add it just to heighten the sweetness so that you can offset it with spice as well. Then you'll add your mix of ground beef and you'll saute, adding a little additional olive oil, of course, so that you get a good caramelized exterior on the meat and the meat begins to cook through. At that point, you'll add your tomato sauce, whether it be homemade or store-bought, and then a good dry wine. Now, another uh, continuing conversation when it comes to bolognese is red wine or white wine. You'd be surprised to know that the white wine is actually more traditional. But but I like a, a hearty red, and preferably when I cook Italian, I like to use Italian wines. So I would go with a Chianti or a Sangiovese if you have a bottle at hand. And don't worry, you'll add about a half a cup or so to your bolognese, depending upon your proportions, and then you'll pour yourself a glass and drink the rest, right? Um, and then, of course, there is the key area of debate, and that is the addition of dairy products, which definitely depends upon the cuisine of the area. Now, according to Marcella Hazan, the great Italian chef, she simmers with milk before adding the wine because she believes that that sort of protects against the acidic bite of the alcohol. But I do believe that a few tablespoons of milk or cream makes every Italian meat sauce better. Then, of course, a good healthy seasoning of salt and pepper and your favorite spices as you like. Now, these are the perfect ingredients in a recipe for a bolognese sauce, but you will find countless variations. In fact, you'll notice in some places that a little bit of grated nutmeg is added for flavor, or um, you'll see uh, sometimes chicken livers are thrown in um, for additional richness. Now, whether you're a bolognese purist or you find yourself stirring up something delicious, that's what makes your recipe signature. What's so great about bolognese is that you can interpret it just the way you like and make it your own. So for a Sunday supper tonight, I hope you're motivated to make a a big pot of bolognese and don't rush it. Just revel in the process of making a rich, fabulous pot of sauce. And then consider if you want to douse it with Parmesan in the end. Be sure to brown that meat well and check out chefjamie.com because I do have the best basic recipe for bolognese, a good starting point. 
You'll also find a few things you won't want to miss at chefjamie.com. Add to your chocolate recipe collection. Grab these recipes now. I posted a mini molten chocolate cake that I featured on KTLA Channel 5 in SoCal. It is a fast, easy, and ultra impressive go-to dessert for every occasion. So you'll definitely want to save this recipe in your arsenal of go-tos. It's simple and easy and the little mini molten cakes bake in just eight minutes. I also have a double chocolate pancake with dark chocolate ganache and berries if you're planning Valentine's Day or if you want to indulge a little bit more. It doesn't need to be a holiday to make your own Nutella. My Think Like a Chef feature this week to make you a better cook in your own kitchen is to master the techniques that allow you to be a culinary hero. And you can make your own Nutella simple and easy. The chocolate hazelnut spread, of course, that everyone loves, delicious on toast and on crepes or with a spoon. Um, Of course, if you refrain from eating it while you make it, it's just six ingredients, in fact, and you'll find it posted at chefjamie.com, along with the recipe for You Heard It on the Radio this week, excerpted from the book coming up called Olive Oil, we're going to share a garlic confit recipe that is really exceptional for caramelized garlic or roasted garlic like you've never had before. Stay tuned for that conversation coming up. This is where knowledge and inspiration is served up every Sunday. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. I'll be right back. Sharing tips, tricks, and techniques to help you cook like a chef and bake like a pro. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. Drizzled or generously poured, the ripe, silken, beautiful qualities of olive oil are a gift to great cooks. Add a splash to a robust Tuscan bean soup, an elegant shrimp pasta, homemade biscotti, or an orange pound cake, and you have something delectable and good for your health. The health benefits of olive oil are unrivaled, and research reveals more benefits nearly every day. Olive oil is the cornerstone, of course, of the Mediterranean diet, an essential nutritional mainstay for the world's longest living cultures. So to share some of the best cooking techniques and recipes that I've seen using olive oil is author Mary Plattis. Along with her co-author, Laura Bashar, they have written a beautiful book on the never-ending possibilities and virtues of olive oil. And so Mary is here to dish. And I'm glad to have you, Mary. Oh, thank you for having me. Of course. Okay, um, first and foremost, let's start off with a definition because we hear on television and from celebrity chefs and great cooks all the time, oh, first you start with E-V-O-O, right? And so it's become abbreviated, but I think it's necessary for explanation. You know, it's so true. Uh, (laughs) Chefs, uh, cooks at home... They get a little confused with all the different varieties of olive oil on the shelf today in the supermarket. So all you have to remember is the word extra. Extra virgin olive oil is what you should be reaching for. And the definition we like to use, it's the only um, oil out there on the market that is a fresh fruit, and it's pressed. 
as a fresh fruit. All the other oils are refined or they're blended. So when you're ready to reach for that olive oil, make sure it's extra virgin olive oil. Okay, now there are other varieties, and we hear a lot. You know, you don't have to use the most expensive if you're doing long, slow braises, only if you're, you know, making a vinaigrette or finishing a pasta. But you say, and you and Laura believe, that the best quality should be used for every preparation. That's right. That's right, Jamie. The reason why is if you do use a poor quality olive oil, you will run into trouble with um, high temperature oils. And also the end effect on your dish, you know, you go to all that work of preparing those wonderful vegetables Mm -hmm. and to pour a less quality olive oil on it, it doesn't make sense. And, And the flavor's not there and the health benefits aren't there. So with an extra virgin olive oil, you're going to get those wonderful health benefits that we call MUFAs and all the polyphenols we need for our body. Okay, talk about some of the newest scientific revelations, because we hear a lot of controversy uh, between olive oil, canola oil, grapeseed oil, avocado oil. You know, there there are so many choices, but the Mediterranean diet, and we know those that uh, live in the Mediterranean cultures, they do live the longest. They do, and that's because olive oil is their staple. Um, being Greek myself, yes. olive oil was our only choice, hmm. and that's what we use for everything. And uh, the, the health benefits protect us against heart disease because there are polyphenols that are um, antioxidants and they reduce the anti-inflammatory properties in your body. So yes, there's, there's been hundreds of studies that show this. And even um, back in the 400 PC, uh, Hippocrates wrote about the health benefits of olive oil. Hmm, Isn't that interesting? It Uh, is. I know from reading the book, and I was surprised, one liter of olive oil is produced from the pressing of seven liters of olives. So it's really an extraordinary process. And olive oil, as you say, is produced all over the world now. So do you have favorites as far as a flavor profile is concerned? Like I remember the olive oil in Sicily was really robust and beautiful, that, um, you know, very strong, bold Italian olive oil. And I think it is a, a palate preference, really. Um, but I assume you use Greek, right? Well, no, I use <laughs> Greek as well as many others, Italian. Uh, it is a, a preference, you know, it's like a fine wine, mm-hmm. and the more you taste, the better you get at the, the, the selection of your olive oil. So you can have many varietals in your kitchen and interchange them according to what you're cooking, but uh, basically what you're looking for is a, a clean, robust, uh, something that doesn't have any type of a tinny taste mm-hmm. or musty so if you start with if if you start with a farmer or a reliable store where they sell olive oil and the farmer starts with excellent olives he will end up with a premium olive oil. One of the things I love about living in the state of California um among Greek Spanish, Italian, even Australian, as you mentioned, olive oils, is I love the Arbaquinia olive, uh-huh. and I think it makes exceptional olive oil. So if you can find olive oil locally, you are getting the freshest source. You are. You are. And we're fortunate here where we live that we do have a local olive oil farm that produces premium. And when I mean premium, uh, um, extra virgin olive oil is defined by an acidity level below 0.08, and that's a California standard. Uh, But if you go to your local farms, you can actually get a premium olive oil below that 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 runs 0.08. 
0.3 and 0.4. Amazing. And then let's talk about preparations because I mentioned you can use it in a Tuscan bean soup or a minestrone where I think the flavor of the olive oil comes out. A simple saute of vegetables, of course, the perfect pasta for a weeknight meal. And then I think it lends itself beautiful uh, to beautifully to baking because I bake with it as you do. But there are a couple of techniques that we're seeing in restaurants across the country and gaining in popularity in home kitchens, and that is poaching with olive oil and frying with olive oil. So dish on both, if you would. Oh, gee, poaching. One of my favorites. I teach that all the time. Um, I'm also a culinary teacher. I just taught that um, two days ago. Hmm. And people are surprised that you can poach with olive oil. Olive oil uh, poaching is a very old French technique. They, you know, very famous for their poached eggs yes. in olive oil. Poaching is a slow simmer, and you, and what you do is you start with a cold olive oil. You place all your aromatics, your herbs, your onions, your garlic, and do experiment with various herbs and and spices. You place your meat, your fish, your chicken, your shrimp in the cold olive oil. Place it in a low oven at 225 and let it cook at that very low temperature for 15, 20 minutes. Often check it. Uh, you may want to flip it, um, the ahi tuna. You may want to do that since it's so thick or a, a chop. And uh, it's done and it keeps it so moist. And then the olive oil flavors the, the food as it slowly Mm, as it permeates. It's an amazing, it's an amazing flavor afterwards. Most people have never had that before. And uh, it is something to explore if you're a cook at home. For sure. I love your rosemary garlic lamb chops in the poached olive oil method. And you say, you know, 20 minutes and then say another 10 or so, as long as you're checking for temperature. It's a reasonably quick way to cook if you consider the incredible flavor that you gain from it. Um, I I love that idea. Now, frying in olive oil, um, lots of conversation going on in the food world um, about that uh, preparation or method. You know, you can fry. Um, The problems we had in the past were the olive oils were blended with other oils, and they were refined oils, which brought the temperature up. So if you stay uh, with a premium or an extra virgin olive oil, you're safe to fry all the way up to 375. And that's for even a, a, a time frame of over 40 minutes. So in Europe, they fry their fries in olive oil. We have been frying with olive oil as long as my mother has been cooking and many people have been cooking throughout the world. So it's, a, it's really a myth here in the States that you cannot fry with frying oil. And Absolutely. It, it, it brings that great flavor into those fries or whichever, you know, a vegetable you're frying up. I was going to say, and it tastes so good. Um, yeah, well, it, it is. It, it does. <laughs> it tastes so good. And then I'm grateful that you shared your garlic confit in olive oil recipe. We've posted it at chefjamie.com with a direct link to twoextravirgins.com. Um, but share with us this, I mean, old world but new approach to succulent beautiful caramelized roasted garlic without the need to roast, right? That's right. Um, And this method is so simple. All you need is a ball jar, any type of a canning jar. And you start with uh, fresh garlic, peeled garlic, bring it to a simmer in olive oil. Um, If you burn it, you must start over. So Mm. be careful with that Um, because it does cook quickly, the garlic. You want to wait till it gets a nice round golden color you pull it off cool it and you can keep that in the refrigerator to flavor your pastas 
your uh, fresh roasted vegetables. Um, you can put it inside your um, poaching liquid, mm. and just on a just on a wonderful warm baked slice of bread. It is a beautiful collaboration. The book, the photographs, um, the techniques. Congratulations to you from award winning food bloggers Mary Plattis and Laura Bashar. You will find everything you need to know about olive oil on their website at twoextravirgins.com where you can bring the book into your kitchen as well. As the delicious conversation continues, there's more to learn about the wide world of food right after this. Don't go away. Your culinary culture and lifestyle show that celebrates food, wine, travel, and all things delicious. And I do love to travel for food. Rick Steves is on a mission to help make European travel accessible and meaningful for all of us Americans. And seeing that our vacations are becoming shorter and shorter, we're always looking for ways to save time and money and to create life-changing memories, of course. In the new edition of Rick Steves' Europe Through the Back Door 2015, his Travel Skills Handbook, Rick is urging us to venture afar this year and to help us understand and better appreciate other cultures and, of course, have an extraordinary vacation. So over his 30 years of experiencing and exploring Europe, in fact, since 1973, Rick has spent four months every year traveling abroad. He's researched and written more than 50 travel guidebooks. He writes and hosts the PBS series Rick Steves Europe and, of course, has his own weekly public radio show as well. He is here to dish, and I am delighted sharing his top travel tips for 2015. He is Rick. Rick Steves. Welcome, Rick. Glad to have you. Thank you, Jamie. Nice to be with you. If you would, and thank you, by the way, um, I'd like to share the top tips. So start with this. You should always study ahead, you say, to design a smart itinerary. And it's something that I do. So I was proud to read it. Yeah, the pl- planning the trip is, uh, in a sense, it's just a way to extend your vacation because you get in the mood of the trip. You start right. uh, learning about things in advance. You see movies. You, you, you shape your recreational reading. You bone up on the cuisine before your trip, and then you get there, and you know more how to dive headlong into that culture and get a lot out of it. So that makes a a big difference. Plus, remember, there's a lot of crowd concerns and lines, and, and, uh, and, and you need to get around those lines, and you can do that by making reservations for the most, uh, most crowded sites. We Americans tend to go to the same places over there, and for good reason. I mean, when you go to Milano, you want to see the Last Supper, and when you go to Florence, you want to see Michelangelo's David, and when you go to Paris, you want to go up the Eiffel Tower. But each of these sites are, are uh, you know, very frustrating unless you make a reservation in advance. And one of my passions is to uh, remind my readers that there are two IQs of European travelers, those who wait in line and those who don't wait in line. <laughs> Anybody who's waiting in line is screwing up, and uh, if you have a good guidebook, you can use that information to get around those lines. Visit at a time where it's not uh, crowded. Remember, most of those lines are not waiting to get into the site, but waiting to buy a ticket to get into the site, and there are ways to get tickets other than waiting in that line. 
or you can simply make a reservation in advance and scoot straight up to the turnstile. Really smart. I loved the idea too, and I was surprised to see it, that you say don't fly round trip. Well, by that, I, I don't mean get a one-way ticket. I mean fly <laughs> into one city and out of another city. That would be nice. Out of the same city. That yeah. would be nice, though. One-way ticket would be nice. Just to stay there. Sure. No, but but you're saying and cost-effectively, can you fly in and out of different cities to see more? Oh, yeah. Well, you save the time and money it takes to needlessly go back to your starting point. Now, if you're just going to London, fly in and out of London, you know, but if you're, if you're doing a trip across Scandinavia, why not fly into Bergen and home from Helsinki? Or if you're doing hmm. uh, Italy, you can fly into Milano and home from Rome. That would make a lot more sense than returning all the way to Milano. And uh, there's no financial penalty for that. You pay half the round-trip fare from here to there and half the round-trip fare from there to there. Makes perfect sense. Okay, there's one tip on your top list of uh, travel tips for 2015 that I I might not be so good at, Rick. And that is, and I know it's smart, but you say pack light. Well, this is a challenge (laughs) for a lot of Americans, both men and women. Yes. And there's a chapter in my book, Europe Through the Back Door, that talks about the importance of packing light. Now, I have lived out of a 9 by 22 by 14 inch carry in the airplane size suitcase for four months a year for the last 30 years. For me, it's a blessing. It's not heroic. It's just enlightened to travel light and to be mobile and unencumbered by all this extra stuff. If I had a Sherpa to carry my gear, I'd set him free. I want to travel light. Um, it's Whether you're going for two weeks or two months, whether you're a man or a woman, old or young, north or south, winter or summer, it doesn't matter. You need to pack light. We took 20,000 people on 800 different tours all over Europe last year, 30 different itineraries. None of these people were allowed to check any bag to start the trip. They started with a carry-on-the-airplane-sized bag. That's the dimension that fits in the overhead locker. For a lot of people, that was a radical concept, but we talked about it in Europe Through the Back Door, my guidebook. There's a very important list that that goes right through point-by-point how you pack light. Still, people have a a lot of stress about packing. So on my website at ricksteves.com, I've got a one-hour lecture. It's free, and it's just a click away where I give a talk about how to pack light. And I don't have a lot of credibility among women for packing lights. So <laughs> one of our, our female guides has a, a wonderful one-hour talk also on our website, along with all the other lectures we have on our website to help people travel smarter. And in the case of uh, packing light, uh, more footloose and fancy-free. Remember, with climate change, there's a lot of turmoil in the air, a lot of thunderstorms. And mm-hmm. I found more than ever in the last year, I was having to kind of roll with the punches with the scheduling on my flights within Europe. And thankfully, I had my bag with me, and they would say, well, that flight's been delayed, but you can hop on this one if you have your bag. There's your bag. Hop on. I just saved half a day of headaches. Yeah, no, it makes perfect sense. And I promise to watch the video because there is something to learn for sure. Can you come home with more than you went with? What was the rule there? Because oh, I like to of course. I like to collect yeah. things along the Everybody way. Everybody on our... Oh, of course, you pick up stuff along the way. And with our tours, and that's one of the biggest parts of my business these days, we've got, uh, as I mentioned, we've got a a thriving tour program. And on a Rick Steves tour, whereas everybody starts with that carry-on-the-airplane-sized bag, we have a box under the bus. And if you take a tour or if you go on a cruise or whatever, you can keep that box under the bus or in the stateroom. And then you gather your your, uh, goodies there, and then you just have the reality of when when the tour leads you at the, leaves you at the last hotel, you are uh, uh, burdened with all the things you picked up. Sure. I would remind you, whenever you buy something big or breakable, that shop in Europe is adept at mailing it home yes. going through all the duty concerns and everything. And oftentimes, it's even cheaper to have it mailed home because you get around some sort of duties and taxes. Right. So find out if you're buying a carpet in Turkey, 
how to ship it home. I, I've learned that along the way, and I think that's a spectacular tip. Rick, we need to take a quick break, but I want to continue to travel with you. Take a trip to Europe as the delicious conversation continues more right after the break. Taking a trip through Europe, through the back door, in fact. Rick Steves, acclaimed travel writer, is here. Leave us with this, um, maybe the most important on my travel list. Um, you say eat with the locals rather than the tourists. So let's talk food, because I'd love to to know your favorite food city in Europe. Um, but there is a wonderful way to get to know the culture and the people by gathering around a family table. Oh, there's so much <laughs> the culture best at way. the family table. And that can also be at the local pub where you've got beautiful tapas, or, or it can be at the little mom-and-pop restaurant where the locals eat. And rather mm. than going to the famous place that everybody's talking about on TripAdvisor or something like that, I think it's important to find the local place that's just packed out with locals that go week after week. I spend um, a good part of my evenings, uh, probably 80 or 90 nights a year, running around Europe looking at restaurants for my different guidebooks. I've got a guidebook for every country in Europe, and I very uh, put a lot of energy into getting the, the best restaurant listings. And what I look for is not a place on a high-rent square where all the tourists are, I want a low-rent location down the street, around the corner, on the little lane in the back, and I want it to be packed out with locals. I want it to be a mom-and-pop kind of place with a, with a small, handwritten menu in one language on the door. Mm. If it's a low-rent place, if it's packed out with locals having a great time, and if the menu on the door is small, one language, and handwritten, that means they're just cooking up what they can afford to sell economically and profitably. That means... It's handwritten because it was shaped by what's fresh in the market this morning. That's right. It's one language because it's catering to locals. That's mm. going to be a great place. Bottom line, choose a local mom-and-pop place and eat with the seasons. If you're hell-bent on eating porcini mushrooms, they may serve it to you, but if it's out of season, sure. it'll be tasteless, and no local would do that. If everybody's eating the white asparagus, eat the white asparagus. <laughs> Go with the season, and you'll eat better, and you'll eat more economically. Okay, good tips. I'm with you on all of those. I'll meet you at that small little hole-in-the-wall neighborhood mm, place. The best good. city you've eaten out of uh, lately, Rick? Oh, the best city I've eaten, eaten at. I, I love eating in Paris, but I'll remind you, if you're going to spend... $80 for a great meal in Paris, you can get just as good a meal for $40, half that, when you go to a small town anywhere in the French countryside. Mm. Ask around, find out where you'll get, go for the splurge in the small towns of France, and you'll eat like a king. Oh, we're dreaming of our next European vacation. Thank you for sharing the best travel tips. The book is uh, really impressive and extraordinarily comprehensive, and I will keep it on hand. It is Rick Steves' Europe Through the Back Door, the Travel Skills Handbook, just released for 2015, telling you what you really need to know when traveling through Europe. Learn more at ricksteves.com. Rick, a pleasure. Uh, look forward to uh, hopefully our paths crossing at some point in travel soon. Thank you very much, and bon appétit. And the same to you. Thank you. There's more delicious conversation to make every day delicious right here in your radio. We'll be right back.
This show brings you fresh ingredients, recipes, and kitchen wisdom from celebrity chefs, authors, and culinary experts. Welcome back, Chef Jamie Gwen, in your radio. When you're navigating the world of health and wellness, who do you look to for information? Well, we all seek nutritional advice from newspapers, magazines, and healthcare professionals. And it's our good intention to become healthier, right? But do you often find yourself confused by the conflicting messages that arise from the mantras to eat this, not that? Well, in order to stay healthy and derail, to keep from derailing the nutritious path, there is a journey toward better health, says Beth Warren, registered dietitian and certified nutritionist. She lives a kosher life, and in her new book release called In Living a Real Life with Real Food, she's sharing her kosher perspective. It's advice and recipes and meal plans that will help you attain a healthier, more energetic lifestyle. And I think it's a really fascinating perspective. Beth Warren is a registered dietitian nutritionist and a New York State certified dietitian and nutritionist with a private practice in Brooklyn, New York, and she joins us live. Beth, I'm glad to have you. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Yes, of course. And congratulations. Um, I thought the book was really fascinating to read through because I was raised um, and practiced Judaism, um, but never in a strict kosher home. I know from kosher practices, but I've never considered it really a way of life for a healthier eating lifestyle. So um, give us a glimpse into your into your kosher life. Yes, well, it, it really guides a lot about how you eat, when you eat, what you eat, basically every eating behavior that has to do with food. And... What my book describes is how, when you live a kosher lifestyle, how you could use those disciplines and guidelines to actually eat more mindfully, eat more healthfully, read food packages and labels. Because when you eat kosher, you actually have to read each product that Mm -hmm. you're going to buy off the shelves and look for a kosher certification. So I encourage people that if we're already doing that, uh, we have to start reading food labels and we could read food ingredients and we could look for more healthy options and not just only for the kosher symbol. Also, kosher eating kosher has a sense of discipline. So if you're somewhere where the food is not kosher, you're not going to eat it. So I encourage people that when you are in front of food and it's not healthy, maybe we should say, you know what, I don't have to have this right now. And you could mm. use that kind of discipline because you're already used to turning down foods sure. to make more healthful choices. And um, there's certain blessings we say with a kosher lifestyle on food before we eat it. We show like a recognition to God and a appreciation for the food we're about to eat, and we say a blessing. That really helps with a mindful eating technique. That you know what we're stopping and thinking before we're eating. We're looking at our food. We're appreciating our food, and then you go ahead and enjoy what you're going to eat. And that step before that you take makes you think about the food a little bit more and start to get a little bit more full and slow you down and all these eating habits that really could be just attributed to a healthy lifestyle in general. I think that the insight in your book is fascinating to read. There are so many true definitions. And I think as you speak about, it is a health puzzle today. 
and whatever it takes to get on the right track, to eat in moderation, to live the best life, um, I'm all for. So congratulations to you for sharing um, what I think is a, a really progressive perspective. The book is called Living a Real Life with Real Food, and it is written by dietitian and nutritionist Beth Warren, How to Get Healthy, Lose Weight, and Stay Energized the Way She Does, The Kosher Way, uh, as do her four children, by the way, living in Brooklyn, New York. And you can learn more at BethWarrenNutrition.com. Um, it's uh, really, uh, I think, interesting and insightful commentary. So I congratulate you and I thank you for sharing your passion, Beth. Thank you. I hope everyone could learn something from it because even if you take on one thing from the book, any consistent change in your life really will make it a whole lot better. Well, thank you. We'll plan for that. One change. One change today. So that brings us to the end of another hour of Delicious Conversation. I hope that I've inspired you to make something scrumptious this week, or at least I've made you hungry. You'll find additional inspiration at chefjamie.com where there are thousands of recipes, cocktails you'll love, videos, and more. And I'll leave you with this, what I like to call my last bite, my last ounce or tidbit of gastronomic pleasure. And it's all about roasting chilies this week. In fact, the Alton Brown way. I happen to love serious heat, but whether it's the mild-mannered heat of a roasted poblano or the smoldering, spicy deliciousness of a smoked jalapeno, most of us think that the best way to roast a chili at home is directly on your gas burner if you happen to have a gas stove or underneath the broiler, or you have to fire up the grill. Well, there is an ancient episode of Good Eats where the fabulous food geek Alton Brown takes this magical idea of using a metal insert steamer. You know, the one that folds up and collapses into itself that you put in the base of a pot to steam broccoli or otherwise? Well, that insert steamer turns into a chili roaster on top of the stove. It's ingenious. No matter what kind of stove top you have, gas, glass, or electric, you can put that metal steamer right on top of the burner and then fill it with chilies, but don't overload it. And then I will say, you definitely want to open the windows or turn on your fan or your vent and place chilies in the steamer and let them roast until they're blackened. The steamer actually conducts the heat from the burner and gives you a really beautiful beautiful overall round roast. Then, of course, you want to steam the chilies in a bowl covered in plastic wrap so that the skins remove easily and then stuff them or puree them or serve them as you like for chile rellenos or your next favorite salsa. You name it. I think it's the best way to roast chilies, the Alton Brown way, in fact. Stay tuned in the coming Sundays for more exciting methods inspiration and preparations to make you the best chef you know. I'm Chef Jamie Gwen signing off. I thank you for listening and I hope you continue to eat well. Well,